Welcome, listeners, to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, the podcast that highlights cozy and traditional mysteries. You won't find stories filled with explicit sex or graphic violence. You will find interviews with authors who create crime fiction filled with intriguing plots, engaging characters, and high-quality writing. Thanks for listening. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Sujana Massey, author of the Pervy Mystery Novels, joins me in the corner today to chat about The Bombay Prince, the third novel in the series. Welcome, Sujana. Thank you so much, Alexia. I'm happy to be with you. I'm happy to have you. And uh, as I mentioned, The Bombay Prince is Praveen Mystery's third mystery outing. So would you tell us about Praveen and what she's up to this time? Sure. Well, the character in my novels, uh, Praveen Mystery, is a young woman lawyer in 1920s Bombay. And in this book, The Bombay Prince, it's about what happens when Prince Edward VIII of England comes to visit India in 1921, something that really happened. And there was a lot of rioting and um, vandalism that followed his visit, uh, political protest. At, at the same time, people were dying. And so Praveen gets involved in the death of a young woman that some people think it's just because of the riots. And she thinks it might be something different. It, is a, it, seems, it seems apparent that you incorporate the social and, and political scenes in 1920s India into your novels. So how do you feel the sort of conventions of crime fiction lend themselves to sort of addressing these broader societal issues while still telling an engaging crime story? Well, I was on a um, conversation with the um, mystery critic Oline Cogdell recently, and she said that Mysteries are social novels, and they're one of the few genres where we really take apart, a, we can take apart a cultural phenomenon and show how it affects people and investigate how maybe something goes wrong with it. So I think that if anything, we run to mysteries because we want to see the world as we know it reflected and we also learned things about the past, if it's a historical mystery. And these are historical mysteries. And as you said, set in the 1920s in Bombay. Now, many of us probably have some sort of you know, exotic image of the city based on Merchant Ivory films or the Raj novels or some miniseries, which I suspect is probably not the most accurate image uh, to have. So what was what was... Bombay really like a hundred years ago? Well, if only I were there to tell you, Alexia, <laughs> but w- the way that I get my info is I, I read a lot of articles from that time. I look at old films. I look at old pictures and, uh, you know, I, I read articles. And so what I, what's exciting about that time in 1921 in in Bombay, now Mumbai, is it was about uh, 26 years away from independence uh, from British rule, but nobody knew that then. And everybody was just saying enough already. 
what, you know, when are things going to change? We've got to change things right now. So it was a time of great political upheaval. And the most challenging thing for Mahatma Gandhi, who was a, who was a lawyer at the time, a lawyer in his 50s, who was living in Bombay, the most challenging thing was uniting all the different groups. There were so many different religions in India, people of different income levels. And the freedom message originally started out for elites, elites heard it, but not the working class. And so the thing that was uh, go going on in this novel is the working class finally got involved in political action. And that was really disturbing, um, you know, to the people who had thought the freedom movement was going to be one way. And Gandhi was a lawyer, of course, and Praveen's also a lawyer during a time when very few women or were lawyers, or at least that's what that's what we think. There are probably more women lawyers in the 20s than we realized. Uh, but what, what inspired you to choose this as a as a profession for Praveen? Yeah, I was very excited to learn in my research when I was just researching that time period in, in India that uh, India's first woman lawyers started working in the 1890s wow. and her name was Cornelia Sarabji. And the second lawyer that I could find out about started working in the early 1920s and her name was Mitan Tata Lam. And the first lawyer was a solicitor the second, a barrister. And in India, they were using the British system, of course, at that time. And I love the idea of having a woman lawyer um, be the recurring character in the series because she's got a really good reason to run into dead bodies more than once. And she's got people coming to her that are going to complain about being defrauded, um, they're going to complain about inheritances and theft. All those kinds of things really happened. And thank goodness that those early women lawyers wrote memoirs. So I was able to read their memoirs and figure out what life for a, a woman lawyer would have been like in the 20s and what kind of cases would have taken their interest. And for those of us not so familiar with the British system, what's the difference between a solicitor and a barrister? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. And uh, let me tell you, I haven't gone to law school, so I hope I'm getting it right. Um, the solicitors are the lawyers who deal with things like contracts and leases, and they, they are the lawyers that do all the paperwork. Barristers are the lawyers who actually stand in the courtroom and argue a case. It was always to a judge because they didn't have a jury system in India at that time, except for family law. So, um, you know, it was a very um, constrained system. And the reason women were solicitors and not barristers was because they, it was against the law for them to uh, um, address a judge in a courtroom. I mean, there was just a blanket law against it. So they could work at, at solicitors, fortunately. And so that's what Praveen is doing right now. And uh, another aspect of Praveen that I suspect um, many, if not most of us are not familiar with, uh, she's Parsi. She's a follower of Zoroaster. Uh, 
Uh, and this was a very particular choice that you made. So for those of us who are not familiar with uh, Zoroaster, Aster, sorry, I can't even pronounce it per properly, or Parsi, can you tell us a bit about uh, Zoroastrianism and, and why that choice matters so much in this, in this novel, in your series? Yeah. The first thing I want to make clear is that I'm not a Zoroastrian. Um, my Indian background is, is Hinduism on my father's side. But one of the things I found out was that the, even though this is a very small religious community that originally came from Persia, which is why they're called Parsis, they made up a third of the legal force in Bombay at the turn of the century. So they loved the law and they were very popular and sought after as lawyers. And another interesting aspect to the Parsi community is that this community is noted as um, encouraging its daughters to take on professions well before other communities in India did. So that means there were more, um, you know, Parsi, the, the first women lawyers in India were Parsi. Um, there were plenty of Parsi women doctors. There were also women doctors of different faiths. But in general, it was easier to convince your parents that you wanted to work if you were a Parsi than another faith. So that's really important if you're writing a mystery series about a woman sleuth who, who's actually going to be able to, you know, kick some butt. Does, does that uh, factor into maybe some of the challenges Praveen faces as coming from a family that very much encourages their daughters to uh, seek professions, coming smack against a, a legal system that tells her you're not wanted here? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation because Perveen's father, who's a lawyer, really wanted her to be a lawyer. And she, at times she isn't sure she wants to be one because law school was just full of harassment for her and it would have been easier to walk away. So she had a situation where her family thought it would be prestigious for her to be the first woman lawyer in the city. So yes, she wants to do that, but every step of the way, you know, she is told, um, you know, you can't, you don't belong here. And at the same time, she's, she's defending um, women clients who really have no voice. And she gets excited about that because she is, there, there were communities um, of women that just could not see men. Like for example, um, Muslim women often were living in a secluded situation called Purda and they, they really couldn't meet men. And, and Hindu royal women were not supposed to meet men either. And I, I mean, they, they couldn't speak to a male doctor. They couldn't, they couldn't, they could speak through a screen, but they couldn't meet them. And the same for lawyers. So she realizes she has a unique advantage there in helping people. And that sets up for a lot of interesting books in the series. Like, you know, there's one where she helps these three widows in a household. That's the first book, The Widows of Malabar Hill. The second book, she helps um, a Maharani, you know, a, a royal woman living out in the countryside who's completely isolated. 
And in this book, she actually helps a young college student. And I know you, you mentioned that uh, the memoirs of the actual uh, women lawyers who uh, practiced during this time were helpful sources of you. You also traveled to India to do some of your research. What was what was that like? Oh, it, it's it was a joy. Um, I've been going to India sporadically since my childhood. And there was a period, though, when I got into my 40s that I just began going a whole lot more and India became more important in my life. I should mention that my father's from India, my mom's from Germany, I was born in Britain. So when I go to India to do this research, I always have family members that I can spend time with and that are sort of like these unofficial um, solvers, fixers, you know, there's this word for journalists, like when they're abroad, that they have a fixer who helps them set things up. And I have aunties who've managed to help me get library cards when I couldn't get a library card on my own. And, um, you know, all kinds of neat things like that happen when I'm there. And I also have a, a group of uh, you know, historians either based in India or based here that specialize in colonial history that I talk to. And then I have some women lawyer friends in India, which is very exciting. Now, you mentioned you were born in Britain and obviously Britain colonized India for a very long time. So did you uh, find it challenging or, or stimulating perhaps to write about India from India's perspective instead of from the British colonizer of India perspective, which is what yeah. most things are written from? Right, most things were written from that British perspective. And I remember when I was about eight years old and I was given this book, A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which I absolutely loved. But the thing that was, was so confusing to me is how the Indian characters in the book were bad and that they were um, irresponsible and they seemed stupid and they seemed fawning. And I just, you know, I had an Indian dad and he sure didn't act that way. And that was the image that I got when I read um, the colonial literature that was meant for children. There was quite a lot of that written um, between say 1900 and even up through about 1960. And I wanted to read these books because that was all there was. Um, but then I was also horrified. So it was exciting for me to go to India to look at this time period and tell the stories a different way. Now in in addition to weaving the social and political issues into your stories and doing so from the Indian perspective, you include accurate details on cultural elements like food and clothing, and you use those details as more than just window dressing for the story. So what, what role do they play? Yeah, well, clothing was a matter of life and death sometimes um, because People wore, they draped their saris, for example. You may know, a lot of people know sari is this um, beautiful long garment that a lot of Indian women used to wear a lot, um, still wear sometimes. But the way that you drape the front of the sari and the way you put it over your head um, and the kind of blouse you wore underneath 
that could tell your religion. Oh. And if there was a religious um, strife in the city, that could target you and it could target you for, you know, all kinds of nasty things happening to you. I know this is the cozy corner, so I don't want to get too graphic about it, but, you know, women were singled out and because of how they were dressed. And similarly, if there were men that were wearing European clothing and it was a day that people were feeling very anti-European, you know, they would be in trouble. And then what if you were a person that looked like you were um, a Hindu or a Muslim that they thought, oh, this person is for the freedom movement and they're against us? Well, then those people in the European clothes might go after them. So it was a, it, and this is not something that happened every day, but it was a matter of life and death during the time that I was, that I'm writing this novel, which is November 1921. And I wish I could say that the way people dressed no longer affected the way people treat them, but we know that's not true. Uh, but how, how about the how about the food? Did you find any uh, differences in uh, the the way food was prepared or served or the significance of it in a, a period where they were shifting from uh, the British rule to uh, push for independent rule? I mean, the, the you know. Cuisine tells a lot about cultures. Did you yeah. find any cultural uh, you know, shift in the what foods were okay uh, as, as the political upheaval was going on? Well, Christians and Parsis ate anything. And that means they would eat all the different kinds of meat. They would eat fish. They would eat vegetables. Not a whole lot of, not as many vegetables as the Hindus did who were only vegetables unless they were uh, like a, a royalty caste. Um, and then Muslims ate meat, but of course they didn't eat pork. So there's a whole lot of this going on even still, you know, what do you eat? What don't you eat? It, people understand if you don't want to eat something. And during that time, there was also a love of British food. Um, and the higher class you were, the more likely you were to serve like a custard for dessert or a cake, uh, things like that. And it even goes on today. Like if you go into a social club in India today, they will make the most delightful little finger sandwiches that are straight out of like an English tea tray, but they might have a little bit of an Indian accent, like some chopped green chilies in there. So uh, there's some really good things to eat. I highly recommend that people go to Mumbai on an eating adventure. What, what are some of your favorite dishes that you'd recommend they try? So dansak is a really popular dish in India, and I adore it. It's a special curry that the Parsi community makes. It's a blend of meat and lentils and tomatoes, garlic, ginger, and a whole lot of spices that are cooked for a very long time. And traditionally, if a family is mourning a death, they eat dansak, I think the eighth day um, of the mourning period. So they can start to come back to life at that time. And you will find dansak, not just for people that have you know, a tragedy in their family, but people who are going to restaurants, you find it at, all the time at restaurants and club menus. And it, it's very, very popular. And a lot of people don't want to make it themselves. 
because it's, it's very, very tedious and takes a long time. So they go out to eat it. Oh, and do you know if that's often served in Indian restaurants stateside? Never. Never. Yeah, I'm still waiting to find the first Parsi restaurant in the United States. I, like, I don't even think there is one. I think there are Parsi chefs and that they, but they, they, they are, there's not a Parsi restaurant that I've ever heard of. And that's the kind of thing that it's a cultural dish. I don't know that it would be, it would just go on a menu at a, at a, at a standard Indian restaurant. Most of the Indian restaurants in my area are doing a Punjabi food or the food of Nepal. How about you? Um, I have been to a Nepalese restaurant, yes, but no, I have not uh, been to a restaurant that I've known was was Percy. I, I will confess, though, to being um, an uneducated American who just sees Indian and am not always appreciative of the different regional differences um, in, in the dishes. Well, don't, don't feel bad about it because they're, they're, most Indian restaurants don't do that. They don't make regional food. They make food that they think people want to eat. Like they make chicken tikka masala, right? Or they make tandoori chicken. Um, they don't, they, they, they want to succeed. And most people coming into restaurants ask for certain things. Um, you know, and you could even take that analogy to mystery writing, right? That a lot of people just think, uh, you know, an aspiring mystery writer would say, well, I've got to do, I've got to have a body. I've got to have a lot of action. Um, What's going on on TV? I've got to have a character that's real tough or this or that. And what's nice about writing the traditional mystery is we can get away from those conventions and we can go more deeply into character. We can come up with some really creative settings and settings that are realistic. And we can spend as much time on food and clothing as we want. Now, another setting that you've used in your novels prior to Praveen Mystery and India, you wrote the Ray uh, Shimura novels set in contemporary Japan. Uh, so how, how was your approach to that different, you know, aside from the obvious time and, and place? Did you, did you approach it differently or, were the, or did you still see that as a, as a chance to weave in some con- contemporary social issues and uh, details about Japanese culture that maybe people didn't know about? Yeah, well, I was a young, young writer when I started working on the Ray Shimura series. And of course, I, when I say I was young, I was young and unpublished when this was going on for years, because I started when I was about 27 and I had moved to Japan with my husband and he was a young Navy officer. So he was out at sea all the time and I was studying Japanese and um, the cultural arts and I wanted to write something about Japan. So I thought, well, why don't I just write a mystery? Because there are, there are all kinds of nonfiction out about Japan. And then there are all these big foreign gaze novels, you know, by men that are portraying the Japanese as these devious business types and the women as geishas. And, and that wasn't what I saw. So I wanted to write about that, but then I had that 
difficult situation where who am I? Who's my protagonist going to be? Because here I was, this Indo-German, British American woman sitting in in Japan, wanting to write a book. And I said, absolutely, am I not going to make my heroine Indo-German, British American? Because I don't want to be trapped in that. I I I, I want to write about race. I want to write about bicultural identity. That's really important to me. And I see it going on, but I'm not going to write exactly myself. So I made my character a young woman with a dad who was born in Japan, a mother, a Caucasian from the United States. And so um, that character, Ray, was trying to get closer to her roots by living and working in Japan And she was inevitably, you know, putting her foot in her mouth and being a little bit too loud. Um, But she also had some really wonderful times. And she was she was beloved by her her Japanese relatives and the people she worked with. And so I had a lot of fun with that. And that that really is how I learned to write mysteries was writing those books. And they're they're set in the present day because that was what was important to me when I was 27. And did you, were you also able to use uh, Japanese uh, cultural uh, topics like the, the food and, and the fashion, the, sort of the way you did in the Praveen Mystery series to, uh, you know, sort of telegraph a, a broader message about uh, the, the, uh, the world or the situation? Yes, I, I did. And every, I would, the way I, I put it to myself is every one of these books is focused on a different aspect of Japanese history or artistic tradition. For example, I had a book about um, the Japanese food world. And then I had one about kimono. And another one was about ikebana, the flower arranging, which I had studied. So I loved to meet people who were doing that kind of work and learn about the hierarchies in the societies that were devoted to those um, arts and also learn a little bit about the history. For example, what kind of a woman wore a bright kimono? What kind of a kimono would a married woman wear? it would be darker, right? So I was always playing with those kinds of aspects and I I enjoyed it so much. And if you're going to recommend a, a, an important Japanese dish for uh, people to try if they visit Japan, what would you recommend there? Oh gosh, well, I love the hot pot dishes. And there's a dish called Yose Nabe, which is, you know, a ceramic, pot simmering over a little stand and there's a little stock in there and you dip in pieces of um, raw seafood and veggies and then you so you cook them to the way you like them and then you dip them in little sauces Uh, to me that is heaven because you're getting to cook without it being very difficult and it's so cozy to be with other people doing something at the restaurant table. I love that aspect. And another fun thing in Japan is there are these rotary sushi bars where the sushi comes around on, it's like a little conveyor belt. It's a long table. And this is not upscale. This is like very, very, you know, everyday inexpensive, but it's super fun. (laughs) It does sound like fun. (laughs) 
Um, and it, it also sounds like uh, wonderful fun that you're working on your next Praveen mystery novel. That's correct, right? Number four is on the way. Yes, I'm writing a fourth Praveen mystery novel. It isn't titled yet. And it's about the world of, you know, women's health. And I know that sounds kind of crazy. I guess I can say that to you, Alexia, because, you know, you, you've done stuff in, in healthcare. Um, but I'm, I was so horrified to hear that in that time in the 1920s, of all the babies that were born in Bombay in one year, more than half of them would be dead within one year of life. Oh, gosh. The conditions, wow. right? Right. And then the leading cause for of death for women was was childbearing and GYN problems that resulted, you know, like infections and stuff like that. So there was this really desperate need for women to have hospitals and to have like a little bit more care around them before and after their pregnancy. But the problem was that culturally they couldn't see male doctors. You know, that was what oh, their families yeah. told them. So there was a desperate need for women's hospitals and women began uh, working, trying to raise money to have these hospitals. So it's, it's a mystery where Praveen gets involved in helping some women with a hospital and also um, a woman who's accused of a crime, you know, who's in, who's in this whole world of, you know, taking care of children. Do you, do you know about when that one will be out? No, I, 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 I wish I could say it's going to be out in 2022, but the reality of marketing is it might be 2023. Well, in, in the meantime, folks have the first three to uh, keep them going until number four is available. So where, where can they buy the, the uh, Praveen mystery novels or the Ray Shimura novels? Well, I think they're in all the bookstores um, and they're online. So um, it's, and everything, which this is very nice. Everything's an ebook. Almost everything's an audiobook. So there, and there's some large print. So there's quite a lot of options for you. You know, I recommend people look at their libraries too, because that, that can be a great place to get a book. And I'm going to put in a plug for independent neighborhood bookstores, because I have actually seen uh, several of your books as the staff pick at uh, some of the local bookstores. So um, that's a great place for people to go find them. And it'll have a nice big label that says staff pick um, so that the staff is recommending your books. Oh, yeah, that is wonderful. And haven't indie bookstores kept us alive during the pandemic? Like my local one is called the Ivy. And they, there was one point where they were dropping books off on people's porches. You know, you can't get much better than that. <laughs> no, you can't. That That's the kind of service that only comes from an independent store. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a nice counter to Amazon, right? Because we wanted Amazon to be delivering medical supplies. Leave the books to the people who, who handle books all the time. Yes, which makes it easier for Amazon to focus on delivering PPE. So it's kind of a yes. nice symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. I agree. And uh, speaking of, of uh, relationships, uh, where can uh, readers uh, find you on social media if they want to you know, oh, keep yeah. up with what's going on and just, you know, maybe you get a hint on when the next book's ready? Well, I have a website. 
and it's my first and last name together, sujatamassey.com. And one thing that's cool there is I have a newsletter sign-up option, and maybe every two or three months I send out and I email a newsletter, and often there are giveaways and pictures of what the books look like in other countries and recipes, things like that. So that's one aspect. I'm also on Instagram as Sujata Massey author and the same at Twitter, though I very rarely tweet. <laughs> but I'm sure that the pictures uh, on Instagram uh, more than, than compensate for that. <laughs> well, I have fun with every now and then I put in something that I'm cooking. So I think people like to look at that stuff. Yes. And book covers from other countries. That's nice too. Well, that's all I have today. So thank you so much for joining me in the corner, Sujata. And, and thank you for, um, uh, especially since I, I know it's late on the East Coast where you are and um, you know the, it's still sunny here in the, the, the mountains. Um, so I, I do appreciate you uh, uh, staying up late uh, for this for me. Well, I appreciate it so much, Alexia. And you know, you have read so much and I don't know how you have helped so many people in the genre, but you really have done a wonderful thing sharing books the way you do and writing such wonderful books yourself. Well, well, thank you. And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Sujana Massey, author of The Bombay Prince, the third Purving mystery novel. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Hello, listeners. I'd like to give a special shout out to thank my newest patron, Dawn Pearson. Thank you, Dawn, for your support. If you'd like to join Dawn and my other patrons and support the podcast, head over to www.patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. As little as $3 a month gets you a thank you on a future podcast episode. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating or review. Help me keep bringing you fun and informative chats with authors of cozy and traditional mysteries by supporting the podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.